Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Welcome to Window on the West, where we explore all the ages of Tolkien's Middle-earth. With your hosts, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today we are on chapter 10 of the Silmarillion, or of the uh, Quenta Silmarillion, right? Of the Sindar. Um, and we are glad that you've joined us because it's it's been a little while for us. We've had a, a little bit of a summer, and so Michael's getting a little more settled, and Dan's back from vacation, and my kids are thankfully back in school, so things are can breathe a little bit easier, maybe. But uh, but but we're glad that we're back. Um, and thanks for joining us. You know, one of the things uh, that helps us out a lot to get the word out about this podcast is for you to leave a review. And so if you if you take a minute, just go to your Apple Podcasts or your Google Podcasts or Spotify, just you know, say a kind word and give us a five star review. That would get the word out. Or you can find us on YouTube uh, if you just search for the words "the One Ring." We're the first result there. Um, or if you go to youtubecom com, that will also They'll also get there. And, and lastly, if you really enjoy what, what we're doing here, we'd appreciate it if, you be, if you'd become a patron. Um, we have a new patron platform at uh, www.theonering.com slash patron. And this allows you to get access to our private Discord server, to the message board we'll be launching in the next two weeks, and then also to an extended podcast, which we'll be launching in the next two weeks as well. So only patrons will get that uh, extended podcast. It's free for the first month and $4 every month after that. So come and join us there. We're having some great discussions with our small group on the Discord chat. Uh, and that's a lot of fun to, to talk to people in a, in a more give and take type of, uh, type of environment. It's, it's, it's been really enjoyable for us to get that instant feedback. So join us there at thewondering.com slash patron. So today, back to chapter 10 of the Sindar. But before we do that, we have to get into... All that is gold does not glitter. So Dan, it's on you this week. You you drew the short straw again, I guess, by your own <laughs> decision making. Uh, I keep I keep volunteering myself and I don't I don't know. Uh, we'll see how it goes. So uh, this week, all that is gold does not glitter. I have four quotes on humility and I'm going to read them for you now as soon as I can see them. <laughs> Hold on. All right. Okay. All right. I can set that up again. All right. So on this week, I've got four quotes on humility. And let's see. One of these is Tolkien. Three of them are not. So here's the first quote. True humility does not know that it is humble. If it did, it would be proud from the contemplation of so fine a virtue. And then say, the second. Say that again. True humility does not know that it is humble. If it did, it would be proud from the contemplation of so fine a virtue. Here's quote number two. I am not a Democrat only because humility and equality are spiritual principles corrupted by the attempt to mechanize and formalize them. So I'll read that again. I am not a Democrat only because humility and equality are spiritual principles corrupted by the attempt to mechanize and formalize them. Here's quote okay. number three. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So that was quote number three. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And finally, the last quote, humility is the true beginning of intelligence. 
Humility is the true beginning of intelligence. One of those is Tolkien. Hmm. Hmm. Can you read the first one one more time for me? Sure. The first one was, true humility does not know that it is humble. If it did, it would be proud from the contemplation of so fine a virtue. Do you want to go, Michael, or do you want me to go? I, I have an idea. Yeah, I have an idea too. Um, but I don't want to give you my thoughts on my idea because <laughs> then you might get it right. I'm pretty sure I know which one it is. I'm actually nearly positive because I believe it was a quote on Twitter that we put up recently. See, he has an unfair advantage. I, I think, but I get most of them wrong. So it could be that okay. it's close enough where it's like, oh, that reminds me of that one quote that uh, we, we posted on Twitter. And uh, now it, it just... Okay, well, if you enough. know it, then I'll, t- I'll tell you what my thought is. Okay. Should I, so, should I say so, it? So I think it's number two. So, and the reason is because the corruption of spiritual principles through mechanization is a pretty powerful theme in Tolkien. Um, I also know that quote number, uh, as all good Catholics, I know that quote number one is actually from Martin Luther. So, you know, that's that's a thing. How does a good Catholic know all the quotes from Martin Luther? Sarcasm, doesn't Sarcasm. (laughs) So I I, I haven't actually read Martin Luther. Know your enemy. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I think it's number two—the attempt to mechanize it, 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 that being a corrupting principle. I think that's Tolkien. Yeah, uh, I don't. I, I've heard number three before. I don't know who it is. Um, it's a cool one. I like it. It's pithy. Um, mm-hmm. And number four, I, I'm, I'm not sure at all. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard three and four too. Uh, I, for me, it was between number one and two, but I'm, I'm positive that it's number two. It's uh, because, yeah, that is a Tolkien quote. And I believe there were uh, either, I don't know how recent it was, but there was some back and forth on the tweet regarding that because it's a very politically charged kind of statement when you say, I'm not a Democrat. Mm. Uh, when in fact, yeah, democracy was something he wasn't a huge fan of in general either. Uh, but yeah, number two is my is my go-to as well. Man, I made it too easy this week. You guys got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I, I even shortened the quote. I was trying to be tricky too. So uh, <laughs> num- number two, it says, I'm not a Democrat only because humility and equality are spiritual principles corrupted by the attempt to mechanize and formalize them. And then it continues mm-hmm. with the result that we get not universal smallness and humility, but universal greatness and pride. Isn't that some, so true? My yeah. gosh, yes. And then it continues, till some orc gets hold of a ring of power, and then we get and are getting slavery. Oh, you didn't want to go to that far in the quote? <laughs> no. That wouldn't have given it away at all. Yeah. And as a good Catholic, I have to say that the, the quote from Martin Luther about true humility does not know it's humble is total bunk. True oh. humility does indeed know that it's humble. It just doesn't take pride in that fact because humility is not stupidity. Hmm. Yeah, so quote one was Martin Luther, as you pointed yeah. out. Quote yeah. number three about thinking of yourself less is C.S. Lewis. Oh, cool. Okay. And then the fourth quote is John Calvin. Humility oh. the tr- being the true beginning of intelligence. Yeah, well, there you go. We have uh, uh, Lewis and Calvin, and then you got Luther. I guess I have more, more Protestants to read. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I grew up Presbyterian. I didn't know the last one was John Calvin, so. <laughs> thank uh, you dan yeah cool all right well well two 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 for two for both of us here that's that's a rarity uh so so uh next week michael i think it's on you yep you're gonna take it i will uh, and uh let's go on to of the sindar chapter 10 of the quintus silmarillion 
where we get to go through thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history in a few sentences in some ways again, which is kind of fun. But Dan, we go right to you for this because we want to hear Dan's Big Thought. My big thought this week is that we are going back to Middle Earth and there's a bunch of elves that we forgot completely all about because we, <laughs> we, we thought all the elves made it to, to Valinor and we're focused on them. And we get back to Middle Earth and we forget, we realize, hey, we forgot all these guys that we left behind. So it turns out that they have like this entire golden age civilization uh, under uh, Thingol and Melian. And they have, it's, it's so fascinating to me that the, this, the description of like the, the, what they call it, the Thousand Caves, the Menegroth. Um, he just has like this massive fortress. Uh, they have like a whole trade network with dwarves already. Um, it, it's just, it's just amazing to me how much Tolkien can do with just such a short amount of space writing wise that he's, he's setting up this whole other civilization on the other side of the world. Right. In six pages, right? We, yeah. we get the, we, we get this, well, in this copy that we have anyway, is it's a six page chapter. And, uh, I have always loved, I love this because it, it, it kind of gives us the short version of, you know, what's been happening. Me, the, the. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> and this is so back at the ranch, we've got like, like you're saying, Dan, this golden age civilization. But I've always, I see this chapter, and there's, I, I look through this chapter, and to me, this chapter is like a Tolkien master class in how to write a mythic tale. Because in every paragraph here, there are seeds that could be unfolded by the imagination into their, their own stories. There's the dwarves and their nature and how they contrast with the elves the dwarven love of pearls, the dwarven help with the elves, you know, uh, digging out Menegroth, the beauty. I mean, he says specifically that Menegroth was the fairest dwelling of any king that has ever been east of the sea. So what he's saying specifically is it's more beautiful than Lothlorien. It's more beautiful than Rivendell. It's more beautiful than any other kingdom that's ever existed east of the sea. It's, so, so I mean, just having you, you have a story all about that. You have the coming of the monsters, and you have wolves. There were or creatures that walked in wolf shape. I'm like, what? What? What are you talking about? That's crazy. And every single, every single chapter, every single paragraph, rather, has these tidbits of the power of Melian and and uh, the the rise of evil and Luthien herself and um, Thangoradrim and you know the the first battle of the elves um, with the orcs that's come flowing down from from uh, the north. So yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. I love it. Yeah, I, I love that we get all this of the dwarves and how one, you know, the, the dwarves, the great smiths of the dwarves. There are the uh, the great uh, metal smiths, uh, and they have the most in common with the Noldor because of their reverence for Aule. That's right. But what's interesting is that in the very very second uh, the second sentence here, Tolkien says. They, these elves, are called the Sindar, the Grey Elves of Starlit Beleriand, and although they were more Quendi, under the lordship of Thingol and the teaching of Melian, they become the fairest and the most wise and skillful of all the elves of Middle-earth. That means even more skillful, skillful than the Noldor, which I never noticed before. Hmm. Uh, and uh, it, probably, uh, you would say, because of their relationship with the dwarves, of, of mostly of Belagost, right? of the blue mountains over there. And, uh, and so they, be, uh, you see this in how he describes, how he describes Menegroth 
Um, let me find that because it was a really cool vision of it. Um, the elves also had part in that labor, labor of building out the thousand caves, Minograph. Uh, the, the, there they wrought out the visions of Melian, images of the wonder and beauty of Valnorenti. The pillars of Menegroth were hewn in the likeness of the beaches of Orome, stock bow and leaf, and they were lit with lanterns of gold. The nightingales sang there, as in the gardens of Lorien. So the nightingales would go into the caves and sing <laughs> within the, uh, the hewn likeness of the beaches of Orome. I, 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 this, the little details of this caught my eye more so in this read-through than ever before. And now my vision of Menegroth, because when you, when you read this through and you're not really taking the time to go through it, you don't have that vision of, of every little, I don't know, for, for me at least, I kind of want to get the, to the story rather than the description. And so listening to that, or not listening, reading this, uh, brought a vision to my head that had never had never occurred before because you hear oh it's the thousand caves and you think like cave right away and you hear that over and over again in the stories but here in the beginning it's like no it's it's not a cave it's actually like a garden in places anyway. that's right that's right it's a garden well it looks like a garden it's there's the carvings there's the birds there's the beauty I mean it's just it's just this gorgeous place and that's just one paragraph everything yeah. you just said there was just one paragraph mm. and he has other paragraphs. he has a paragraph about the you know the fact that even before Morgoth came, that the um, that uh, Orome and his Valaroma, his wild hunt, used to come through there from time to time, and you know this, and the elves were kind of afraid of him, and they would hide themselves, but they knew that upon his coming, you know, all the monsters would be driven away from the land, and so it's just these these cool tidbits that could be their own story, and no doubt for Tolkien, they are the seeds in his mind of his all his stories that he's writing this is the way he this is the way he um he sort of lays out his brainstorm um i mean i just from a creative writing perspective he's laying out this mythic seedbed here that's so cool one question that i have that i came up with this is that um after that paragraph we talked about where they talk about uh the uh, carvings in menegroth and and the the you know the the garden of stone essentially uh Tolkien writes, but as the third age of the captivity of Melkor drew on, I'm like, oh, so the captivity of Melkor had ages in and of themselves. Hmm. Uh, and I don't know what that means exactly, what that first or what the second age of his captivity would be or what his third age of his captivity is. But at this point, it's where the dwarves became troubled and they spoke to Thingol and uh, the Valar should have rooted out the evils of the north after capturing Melkor, I guess, after the lamps, maybe? I don't no, not the lamps. That doesn't make any sense. But um, the remnant was coming, right? This was before the first the first uh, battle where they talk about wolves. There were of creatures of wolves, walked in wolf shapes and other fell beings uh, and among the orcs who afterwards wrought ruin in Beleriand. Um, yeah, I don't know. I did something to bring up. I didn't really look it up. I, it, it seems an interesting turn of phrase to say there was an age of the captivity of Melkor. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's a... Um, yeah, I just, I don't even know if Tolkien had a clear idea of what that meant. I mean, that's not to me. That feels like, especially because we have so much for that went before where he doesn't, he talks about Melkor's captivity, but he doesn't describe the, any details right. about what, yeah. what the ages were. It just feels like something where he's writing and there yeah, were three ages, there yeah, were three ages of his, of his captivity. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if okay. he knew, knew what that meant. Are so they, maybe are we they should... analogous to the ages that we know of as the first age, the second age, the third age? Because those are about how many, how many hundreds or thousands of years are those normally? Uh, depends. 
depends. Yeah. Well, the third age is 3,020 years, 3,100. Yeah, yeah. The second age is the longest of the three. The first age is less than 600 years. The second age is oh, okay. uh, over 3,400 years. And the third age is just over 3,000 years. Yeah. And so, so um, they're, they're different. They're, they're ages because they're not because they mark a specific passage of time, but because of the events that bookend them. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. So, so that's so, but what um, I think what uh, Jonathan's pointing out is that the third age of Melkor's imprisonment all happened before the first, what we call the first age. Right. Okay. So, yeah. so, so that's, what's interesting is that there's, and, and Tolkien just doesn't write much about it. He's just, this is a, um, this is just a seed. I, I view it as a seed. So one of the cool things about the seeds were we get a lot about the dwarves. It's really interesting. It's, the chapter is called of the Sindar, but we get a great deal about dwarves in this chapter. Um, like Tolkien's filling in, and uh, Jonathan, you mentioned some of the stuff about dwarves. You know, um, we we learned something of their character. The dwarves, it turns out, were the first capitalists of Middle Earth. <laughs> they they demanded payment, right? They take payment for everything. Um, and uh, so he says, and though the dwarves ever demanded a price for all they did, whether with delight or with toil, at this time they held themselves paid. For Melian taught them much that they were eager to learn, and Fingal rewarded them with many fair pearls. So, so they like pearls and they like knowledge, and so they considered themselves paid. But they, but they still weren't doing it out of friendship. They just considered themselves paid for it. So they're like, yeah, this is worth enough. So the dwarves, the, they they take payment for everything. So they're the first, um, they're the first uh, capitalists, Capitalist. and they they are also aggressive in spirit. They are they are naturally militaristic, um, with each other. With everyone. With everyone. And this is, but, and this is yeah. the quote. A warlike race of old were all the Nalgreen. That's the, the Nalgreen is the, uh, is the, as the not so nice name that the elves have for the dwarves. The elves have two names, Nalgreen, which means stunted people, and Gon Hirim, <laughs> which means the masters of stone. So, so in, politically incorrect. They would be like banned off Twitter for using yeah, that. Yeah, they would. They would. <laughs> um, a warlike race of old were all the Nalgreen, and they would fight fiercely against whomsoever aggrieved them. Servants of Melkor, or Eldar, or Avari, or wild beasts, or not seldom their own kin, dwarves of other masons and lordships. So basically, they just fight everybody. They're a warlike race, he says. So, and, and then he goes on to describe how not only are they warlike, but they're really good at it in, in terms of making um, the best mail, the best yeah. armor of the world. They're, they're, no one surpasses them in steel craft, not even the Noldor. So, so they're, they are, in fact, really good at this war thing and uh, they make end up making arms and armor for um, the elves of Fingal's realm so they can they can uh, defend themselves against the beast and then it turns out later on defend themselves against orcs yeah and it turns out that Fingal had never taken thought for arms before mm-hmm. uh, just like the Noldor just like the elves in Valnor they didn't they didn't have to so he hadn't actually ever built any weapons and so uh, it wasn't until that he met the Nalgrim and probably saw them as a warlike people. And was like, what? Oh, so, so explain this whole sword pointy. pointy. So I stick him with the pointy end. Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, right. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting element there when they do have the orcs come and they have to fight. Uh, and he, he enlists the help of Denethor and the green elves. And a lot of them get killed because they don't even have weapons. They just have like sticks basically. And it, it kind of makes a point of saying that like they didn't even have weapons themselves 
Yeah, no, I got the sense that they they just didn't have weapons of war, so they probably would have had spears and bows for hunting. You know, yeah. so they were because they had to they, mm. they they do hunt animals for meat. Um, it's it's it told us in another place. So that's but there's a you know, but they didn't have weapons of war. They did not have mail. They did not have helms. They did not have armor of any kind or war axes and swords. So you know, the weapons, the things that one uses only for war. One does not go hunting a, a stag with a sword. That would be really mm-hmm. silly. So, yeah. but, uh, but so yeah, I, exactly. And they, and they, oh, they pay for it. The one good Denethor in Tolkien's work dies, uh, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> defending his people as opposed to the, the, the bad Denethor that we all know from, uh, from Lord of the Rings. A, a big part of this chapter is um, the first battles with the orcs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I love how Tolkien sets it up again with how everything was wonderful before that, but he puts it in such a beautiful way that uh, my favorite, well, my favorite line of this, but I feel like I have to read the first one too. It's, uh, it's in, it's in, uh, it's, I don't know how how far the way through, but uh, Tolkien writes this in Beleriand in those days, the elves walked and the rivers flowed and the stars shone and the night flowers gave forth their sense. And the beauty of Melian was at, was as the noon and the beauty of Luthien was as the dawn in spring. And then this is my my favorite line. In Beleriand, King Thingol upon his throne was as the lords of the Maiar, whose power is at rest, whose joy is as an air that they breathe in all their days, whose thoughts flow, whose whose thought flows in a tide untroubled from the heights to the deeps. Just this the the feeling he's able to give you of like it was good. There was like it was it was the goodness was something that you breathed around you. It was it was unassailably a benefit to them. It was like, I don't know, good is such a bad word to use in this because he puts it so well, but there, there was joy in the air, but it was literally, they breathed it. Um, yep. His, the, the, the substantives that he uses there are the power, the joy, the thought. Mm-hmm. So the, the, these three things from thing of Thingol, um, which are just kind of environmental. He shows them, he describes yeah, them all as being part of the environment. Which is really interesting because we tend to think, especially nowadays in the highly politicized environment, we tend to think of power as something that one exercises upon others, as opposed to being present in the environment. And and I think that it, Tolkien's idea of power it, used for the benefit of others is something different. But I, you know, along those lines, I I laughed out loud in the previous paragraph, Jonathan, mm-hmm. where I'm just gonna talk about how where he basically has talked about how there's mostly peace in this time then he says but of bliss and glad life there is little to be said before it ends I like, yeah, right it's like nobody so, nobody remembers the good times right nobody talks about the good stuff until they're over and but but the second part of that line too is as works fair and wonderful while still they endure for eyes to see are their own record mm-hmm. and only when they are in peril or broken forever, do they pass into song? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. Man, this he's Tolkien is just a master of prose. He can, yeah. he can, he can say so much. You know, it, it, and it's funny. I can see. I've been. Um, I'm nearly finished now with uh, the Book of Lost Tales Part Two, which it, at times can be a little bit trying because you're reading what he wrote when he was, you know, early twenties. I think is where a lot of that starts, mid twenties maybe. Okay. And his his progression into an an exemplary author of how to write prose you can see because it is nowhere near as good as where he ended up. Oh, is and, that right? uh, 
Yeah. It's, and it, well, there's a lot of, it's, it's a very, you know, King James style of writing. And, hmm. uh, and so to read this here, I feel like he, he progressed so far that, uh, going back to that, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's reading the first draft of his stories and he still hadn't figured it all out and he still hadn't practiced essentially by writing as much as he ever did write. Um, so anyway, um, but I thought we could get into the whole downfall or the, when, when, when Melkor comes, right. Tolkien talks about how, <clears throat> uh, Ungoliant and Melkor slew the trees of the Valar, uh, uh, and then went to middle earth and Ungoliant fled and settled into, let's see, the arid Gorgoroth, right? The mountains of terror mm-hmm. and no one wanted to go there. And then Morgoth went back to Angband and, uh, reassembled the orcs in a way. And this really starts sort of, it, it, that's the this part where he gathers the words is like the commencement of the first age in a way. What I what I liked about this was the reference to the power of Melian. So if you remember back to our chapter with Ungoliant and Melkor, and for those of you who are streaming this, you're going to laugh because it was just like ten minutes ago that you were listening to <laughs> it. So it was like a month for, ago for us. It was a month ago. So, but we, you know, you have Ungoliant at the height of her power. Like it takes a a a squad of Balrogs to drive her off, a, a squad of them. And and Mel, Morgoth himself can't fight her off, and she's at the height of her power, and she's so she flees from these Balrogs, and she flees down south. And it says, but by the power of Melian, she was stayed and entered not into Neldoreth. Yeah. That's, the, that's the forest that, that um, the thousand, the Menogroth, Menogroth, um, I don't know why I want to add an L on that every time. The men, that Menegroth was is in is is the the, the forest of Neldoreth, which is going to get a new name soon. But um, so the power of Melian. Melian's a Maiar. She's not even a Valar, and she can her power is so great that she can keep at bay Ungoliant at the height of her power. So that's a hmm. and then we that's find huge. It is, and and then we find, of course, hmm. later on in this chapter after the orcs have come down and they've there, there's i want to show the map from the atlas of middle earth because so, so our listeners can get an idea um and i can pull it off the shelf behind me if you want but it, if you're getting it then um there's a there's there's a visual which is essentially if you think of the in the far north you think of um Thangorodrim and the stronghold of melkor that he sets up in these mountains then below that, there's a plain, and there's another set of mountains, and that's that's the those are the mountains that um, Ungoliant ends up settling in, which is Arid Gorgoroth. And then below that, and we're told it's basically 450 miles from from where Morgoth is living, is the 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 forest um, of Neldoreth, which is soon to be called Doriath, and the the orcs pour from the north. In this, in this, when they, when he's, and they kind of go to the to the east and to the west of the forest where Thingol and Melian live, and when they go to, I'll do the east. Um, it's they are defeated by a combined force of elves of Thingol, elves of Denethor, and dwarves. On the east, they're defeated, but the western tide of orcs that comes down. It pushes Círdan and, the, and the, the elves of the Phalas. It pushes the sea elves back to the coast, to their walled cities. And the orcs win in that side on the west. They've taken over that land entirely. And so as a response, Melian puts this magical 
girdle, exerts herself and puts this girdle, called the Girdle of Melian, um, this essentially a band around her forest where nobody can no, nobody can penetrate. And it says um, specifically that um, Melian put forth her power and fenced all that dominion around with an unseen wall of shadow and bewilderment, the Girdle of Melian, that none thereafter could pass against her will or the will of King Thingol unless one should come with, with a power greater than that of Melian the Maya. So it's a little foreshadowing there, but yeah, but it's but you know, what's interesting about that is Angolian doesn't have that power, so that's you know, and maybe there's a there's a story behind why Melian has power over Angolian at a, at a level which Morgoth doesn't have, um, but uh, you know, it's not a story that Tolkien ever told. It's curious to me. It makes me think that if Melian was able to put forth such power uh, to deny Angolian. Uh, any entry into the girdle. Are the Valar really that inept that they were unable to go after her? Because we really do of, ha- have to have a, a an against the Valar is. episode. Yeah, <laughs> like their choices are simply it's it's uh, it feels lazy. And maybe that was the point: is that right? There, you know, they they were there to enjoy the world, and when the world wasn't what they wanted it to be, you know, because they were so enamored of it that uh, perhaps they. They well, decided that it wasn't worth their time. I mean, I mean, Jonathan, maybe the clue is in the quote that you gave before. In Beleriand, King Thingol upon his throne was as the lords of the Mire. So his power is at rest. His joy is in the air. His thought flows in a tide untroubled from the heights to the deeps. Um, this is not the vision of the way we imagine power being exercised, but maybe that's the way the Valar and they, they just rarely will, will exert themselves in war when they do. It can be, it can be pretty, pretty um, earth shattering literally, but, uh, mm-hmm. but they, they, they just don't exercise power the way we expect. Having said that, that opens them up for a lot of criticism from a human perspective. And since I'm a human, I'm, I have that perspective. <laughs> So, so one of the funny things, I mean, you know, there's all this great stuff about, about Melian and about Thingol and Denethor, uh, is that when I first read this, there's a place called Region, and it looks like the word region, and I couldn't get it out of my head. So when you see R-E-G-I-O-N, it's Region, not region. And that comes to all these other great words, uh, when, especially those dwarvish words that, that are, can be a little, oh, little yeah. tough. Um, I wanted to say, uh, let's see here. Um, so for the dwarves, they had dwelt for themselves, uh, halls, great halls and mansions after the manner of their kind in the Eastern side of Arid Luin. And those cities were named in the, in their own tongue, Gabalgathol and Tumunzahar to the North <laughs> of the great height of Mount Dolmond was Gabalgathol, which the elves interpreted in the tongue Belagos. That is Mickleburg. Mickleburg. Okay, Mickleburg. Exactly. It's like, is this where, like, is that next to Disneyburg? Mickleburg? Uh, and southward was delved to Munzahar by the elves named Nogrod, the Hollow Bold. I love it. He threw it like he, he was, uh, he was such a philologist. He was yeah. such a philologist that he couldn't help but like throw in three or four different names for the same place in the different languages that he'd created or the, 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 mm-hmm. the English tongue. So, uh, and then he goes on, right? Greatest of all the mansions of the dwarves with Kazadum, the Duero Dwarf, had. Had Hatho drawn in the Elvish tongue, that was afterwards in the days of its darkness called Moria. So we've got Kazadun, Dwarodolf, Hadenron, Moria, and that was in the mountains of mist beyond the wide leagues of Eridor, which at the time was far east 
way further east than the map of Middle Earth in the Third Age because of what happens at the end of the First Age. So he essentially but, gives us like like four different names for yeah. Kaza Doom, and then he says, "But I'm not going to talk about that because that was way far in the east. Nobody <laughs> nobody cared about that. That was too far away." Oh man. It'll only become it. the most important dwarven stronghold it's, in all of my works. Yeah, it's one of those things where I, I go back. I think I might have said this in the very first episode of of, uh, of going through the Silmarillion is that it's reading it a second or third time. It's those things that you notice because you know kind of what's coming, and so you're not you're not as you're not as sunk into the story as much, and so you're reading a little bit more, remembering a little bit more of the details. And I just love that he comes up with all of these names, uh, and uh, and and they're fun to say Tumun Zahar, you know. Well, they, yeah, they kind do. of lend themselves to a dwarven a dwarven rendition, right? Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. You really get the sense reading this chapter that the the world is big. That for for Tolkien, it's not just this one little place. It's like Casa Doom for us has that uh, it has that in our mind because we know Lord of the Rings, and he's saying, "Oh yeah, that's that's way to the east." I'm talking about all this other <laughs> stuff that's over here. It's it's just really interesting. And then there's also interesting in this chapter, doesn't he say something about some elf inventing runes? Yes. And how, yes. how the, el- the elves themselves didn't even really care about it, but the dwarves took it and then they went on to use it. The I, thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. I think it was Dairon, right? Am I remembering it's, that? Yeah, right? it's Dairon. Dairon the minstrel. Um, and, you know, I, I'll... <sighs> I shouldn't. I maybe I shouldn't ref, reference other no, podcasts. Oh, uh, there there is a funny. Years ago, there was a the Tolkien professor at a podcast on the, on the making of the Silmar. If you were going to turn the Silmarillion into a um, into a a feature that actually respected Tolkien, like a TV show, um, oh. and hmm. they they funnily enough, as they were going through, they made Diron into this like sort of like a a jilted elf who was, who was really, you know, he, he had all this creative energy and he, he did those great things, his music and no, none of his people cared in the, in the slightest about yeah, yeah. anything that he was doing, but the dwarves were like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Which fits. It fits what yeah. Tolkien's yeah. saying. There. You could, you could imagine Dairon not, you know, being the underappreciated minstrel, court minstrel. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll give it to the dwarves. <laughs> That's right. Got no other, nobody better wants it. You really do get the sense in this chapter that the stakes are going up, that the orcs are now kind of running over all of Middle Earth, and you just have this little tiny island that's protected by the girdle of Melian, and uh, you have some elves that are on the coast, and every, everyone else is scattered. And it, it, I know, I know, it's an allegory, but to me, it, it really makes me think of like, uh, like, like things, like maybe certain situations, like in some some kind of global conflict, like World War II, where it's like these people they're trapped, they're isolated, they're all by themselves. They need help. Like, where is that help going to come from? And then at the end of the chapter, you read about how the Noldar come and they burn the ships on the coast, and you're like, oh, uh, I don't know, if, I don't know if it's going to help. Uh. <laughs> oh crap! All right, I love it. This hey, is... He puts it. He puts it so gently. But new tidings were at hand, which none in Middle Earth had foreseen. Oh, new tidings, huh? Uh huh. <clears throat> Not the help we wanted. <laughs> yeah, Fionor, Fionor, Fionor is a little different from most kind of help. You would you would not ask for his help. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, and that is it is interesting that he just this is a six solid concentrated pages of mythic seeds in my mind and then in history. And then we, he ties it right to what we last left. Um, although we'll find out from the next chapter that there's one more thing to say before we go back to Fyodor, um, which is, 
because we were told that following Fionor's arrival, that Fingolfin leads his people with much sorrow and death across the Helcaraxe, and that they they um, blow their trumpets at the rising of the moon as they enter Middle Earth. So remember, Fingolfin's people are behind Fionor, so we don't we haven't found out what happens to Fionor and his people yet. But but um, we do know we have been told that there's going to be a rising of the moon. So this next chapter is going to tell us about that. But I just love I love Tolkien's power of concentrated storytelling in this mm. in this chapter in six pages it, I, it's reminiscent of what he does in the lord of the rings when they speak of baron and luthien you know and mm. when, they, when they talk about uh is it uh so true is it prince imrahil and I, I can't remember anyway uh but yeah there's there's a lot you know the, it's the tidbits and the things to the wide open world it's that that you open the door and the bright sunlight wash in the world in front of you and you're like oh my gosh there's all this stuff and all i had was this little window through the door and now everything is open up to me that's that's kind of where we are here. So next week, uh, we're going to be going through chapter 11 of the sun and moon and the hiding of Valinor. Kind of some great cosmic things going on there. But before we do, we're going to go into If You Like Tolkien. And this week, it's it's going to be a little more interesting uh, because I'm, I'm bringing up here, if you're if you're on video, you can see this. This is a, a copy of Wired Magazine from 2001. This is October 2001, so two months before The Return of the King came out. And uh, TheWandering.com was only two years old at that point, two and a half years old. We started in 1999. And um, we were interviewed, and we had a large part of a, the, the uh, cover story here of The Lord of the Rings and the fandom around it and uh, the books and you know talking about the films and things like that. But then they have, I mean, what I love about this is this is before social media and before People started calling other people names on social media all the time and YouTube and stuff. And you just had a nice whole section which talks about purist versus revisionist. You can see that there. But so they actually took the time to talk about, well, here's the pros and the cons. And they didn't go into like, well, if you don't like it, you're racist. Or if you don't like it, you're a misogynist, right? They, they, that, that wasn't the conversation people had back then. Um, so I was fun looking at this, this again. What is this conversation thing you speak of? <laughs> just speaking with people who you disagree with. Yeah, it's kind of weird, civil, isn't it? Civil conversation? What? What? No, what is no, that? no. So I'm all, it's just about emoting nowadays. So right there, you can hey. see there's a picture oh. of me 20 years ago. Uh, we met at your the, hair is a different color, Jonathan. It, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I can always change that. Uh, yeah, that was this a picture of me with um, the two other guys who I worked on the site with, Touch Up and David Mullick. But yeah, that was fun. It was it was neat to see how uh, media looked at something like the Lord of the Rings films rather than it does now with uh, you know commercials and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and articles like it feels like hit piece articles in vanity fair and entertainment weekly and things like that so um it was fun to go back so uh i'll see if i can scan it maybe and throw it up on the website i'll put it in the show notes uh so you can read it and uh put a put it up on the site somewhere but there'll be a link there i like that uh if you like if you like tolkien here's this time capsule that i have and you don't (laughs) 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 all right so next week we're going to be back on to chapter 11 of the sun and the moon and the hiding of Valinor, but we want to remind you again, uh, if you like what you're hearing, if you want to get the extended podcast, which we're thinking like three weeks out, maybe we'll, we're, we're going to look at it, uh, where we'll have more discussion. We'll, we'll answer some questions that people are posing on our discord channel, uh, where uh, you have access to the message boards, where we'll be also be doing some, uh, live streams on YouTube 
and also we'll see if we can do just like a you know just a chat and uh, voice video chat in discord that'd be fun with you know 10 or 12 people or something like that uh so join us at thewonderingcom slash patron it's free for the first month four dollars for every month after that and give us a review on youtube if you've got that right like subscribe share do all the good stuff and then also uh on apple podcasts that's the big daddy so if you go there five star review would be really appreciated so we'll see you next week on chapter 11 of the quinta silmarillion take care all Michael, Dan, and Jonathan want to thank you, the listener, for joining us. Visit us at theonering.com, your source for everything Tolkien, where you can comment on this episode and join the conversation. This is Austin Robertson, bidding you farewell. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. <laughs>